You're listening to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Here's Professor Birdsong. This is Leonard Birdsong. Happy to be back with you here on TalkZone Radio. A few minutes ago, I gave some information about Ellis Island. This is where many million people came to America from Europe during the late 1900s and the early 20th century. And um, some interesting statistics. Four out of ten Americans, or four out of every ten Americans, can trace at least one relative to Ellis Island. Well, I'm here now to talk about not so much the historical thing like Ellis Island, but I want to tell you a little bit about immigration law itself and refugee law, which is a subset of immigration law in the United States. You know, everyone that I have ever spoken to in the United States has an opinion about our immigration laws, but few people have read the law. Most people don't know where to find it. Well, the law is in what's called the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1954. That's been codified into Title Eight of the United States Code Annotated. Most people don't read it. Most people don't know about it. But everybody has an opinion about immigration and how our immigration should be. But let me tell you something about obtaining asylum in the United States. I'm going to give you a little history. International norms for refugee protection were first outlined in what we call the 1951 United States Convention for the Protection of Refugees and later reaffirmed in the 1967 Protocol relating to the status of refugees. Under the Convention and the Protocol, the term refugee applies to, and here's the definition, it applies to any person owning I'm sorry, to any person owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular group, or political opinion, and who is outside his or her country of nationality and is not able or owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself or herself of the protection of that country, or who, not having a nationality being outside of the country, is unable or unwilling to return. Now, that was the original 1951 definition. We've codified it into our immigration laws that basically, if you have a well-founded fear of persecution or you've been persecuted for re reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular group or political opinion, and you're outside of your country, and you don't want to go back because you fear further persecution, you can apply for asylum. Now, there are two types of asylum. We have overseas asylum where people have left their country, and they go to places, sometimes refugee camps, where the United States will send immigration officers to see if these people have a good claim for refugee asylum, or refugee status, we call it. They have to prove and show that they have been persecuted. That's the main word, that they've suffered persecution or have a well-founded fear of persecution if they go back to their home country. Now, if people make it to the United States, they can also seek asylum on the grounds that they have been persecuted or have a well-founded fear of persecution. Now, let's get back to that original 1951 convention. 
It only provided protection for World War II refugees. Future refugees the world over are included in the 1967 Protocol. A protocol is an amendment to a treaty. The United States never signed on to the 1951 Convention, but did accede to the Protocol in 1967, which includes all refugees. Now, one of the reasons I am told, and I'm not singling anyone out, many people in the United States did not want us to sign the 1951 Convention because it would have brought too many Jews from Europe to the United States. In 1980, Congress did enact its own refugee law into our Immigration and Nationality Act. Now, again, the definition now... For us, you must have a well-founded fear of persecution. This must be based on past persecution or the risk of future persecution. Persecution must be on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. And the persecutor must be the government or someone who the government is unwilling or unable to control. Now, that definition applies to people from Syria who are overseas and who want to come to the United States. They have to prove a well-founded fear of persecution or past persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or standing in a particular social group. As well, it applies to people who've already made it to the United States and want to apply for asylum. What about eligibility for asylum? The legal remedy for asylum is available to both non-citizens legally in the United States and to undocumented non-citizens who are seeking protection from persecution they faced or would face in their home country on account of one of the several specific grounds that I told you about. Thus, not all immigrants are protected from persecution. Rather, the persecution must have a connection to the specific protected characteristics of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. I can't emphasize that enough. That's what must be proven. An asylum request is automatically considered as an application for an alternate claim of relief known as withholding of removal. Now, both forms of relief require that the claimant demonstrate a certain quantum of persecution that the individual suffered in his or her home country or would suffer if returned there, and both require a connection, that is, a nexus between the persecution, one of the protected grounds. In 1996, an amendment to the INA, that's the Immigration Nationality Act, mandated that a claim of asylum must be made within one year of arriving in the United States. Up until 1996, you could have been in the United States for 20 years, legally or unlegally, and something changes in your country, and you wanted to apply for asylum. Now, you basically have one year to apply for asylum. There's more. While the legal concepts of asylum and withholding of removal appear nearly identical, they have important differences. Asylum is subject to what we call the discretion of the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security or the Attorney General of the United States. 
whereas withholding of removal, if proven, is a mandatory form of relief. A person granted asylum may be eligible for permanent residency after 12 months. So most litigants prefer asylum. A grant of asylum will allow, allow the applicant, after one year, to adjust his or her status to that of a legal permanent residence. Now, withholding of removal only guarantees that the person will not be forcibly returned to his or her own country of origin and does not preclude the possibility of being removed to a third country. The applicable, the applicable standard of proof is also higher in a withholding of removal than it is in an asylum grant. In order to obtain a withholding of removal, the claimant must show a clear probability of persecution. The showing for asylum is only a well-founded fear of persecution. Now, this sounds sort of crazy, but this is the way our laws are written. Now, there are only two types of applications for asylum, which are termed either affirmative applications or defensive applications. Asylum applicants applying for withholding of removal and applicants seeking relief under what's known as the Convention Against Torture who are not currently under immigration deportation proceedings but have a fear of persecution if they're returned to their homeland, may file an affirmative application by mailing a form I-589, that's the immigration form, I-589, to a regional United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, USCIS, center, which is under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security. Now, when you file that application, a specialized core of full-time professional asylum officers receive the application and review the, review the applications and then interview the applicants. Asylum officers grant asylum in meritorious cases, which initially had been only between 15 and 39 percent, but in recent years, it's exceeded 40 percent. Now, the reason for that, in my opinion, is we now have better lawyering with respect to refugee law and immigration law because people like me who was who were diplomats overseas know what to tell our clients and teach our students about representing people with claims for asylum. Personally, I've represented a lot of people with claims for asylum. So if you file an affirmative Application for asylum is a 40% chance that you will be granted asylum. The immigration officers do not deny the other 60% of the cases. Instead, they refer them to the immigration court, placing the cases in removal proceedings. They used to be called deportation proceedings, but now they call it removal proceedings, but it's the same thing. Once in these removal proceedings, those applicants who did not receive a grant of asylum with respect to their affirmative application may now renew their application for asylum by renewing their request for asylum as a defensive application. The affirmative I-589 application becomes part of the immigration court record, and for those individuals placed in removal proceedings who never file an affirmative application, may file one once they get to court. Now, it's time for us folks to take another break, but there's more information I want to give you on this. I hope you're listening to it. This is important stuff that a lot of people don't know, but 
on Leonard Birdsong Radio. There's no fake news. I'm here to tell you about it. Dave, take me out. It's a new year. You're probably making resolutions again, right? Time to find a better job, improve your relationships, and fix your finances. Well, Consumer Debt Counselors is the company that will help you get out of debt. Consumer Debt Counselors is a licensed, accredited, nonprofit agency that specializes in educating people about credit and debt and helping people resolve issues with debt, even student loan debt. There are so many federal regulations. Most people have more options than they realize, and consumer debt counselors can uncover all of your eligible solutions, including lowering your payment or getting out of default. If you want a partner that will work with you to achieve financial success, talk to the team at Consumer Debt Counselors. They have an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating, so these guys are the real deal. Your first consultation is free, and all sessions are kept confidential. Give them a call at 1-800-820-9232 or go to consumerdebtcounselors.org slash birdsong. The number again is 800-820-9232. You're listening to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Here's Professor Birdsong. Yeah, this is Leonard Birdsong back with you. I've been talking about getting asylum in the United States, and I hope you've been listening. The peanut gallery likes what they hear or what they've heard, but I have just a little bit more for you. What about immigration court proceedings and appeals? Immigration judges, known as IJs, provide the initial evaluation of all defensive applications for asylum, withholding of removal, and provide a second review of affirmative applications referred by asylum officers. The pre-exists, um, let me say, in the latter situation, the immigration judge reads or receives the pre-existing I-589 with its attachments from the asylum officer along with copies of the charging document. Applicants are allowed to supplement their claim in the immigration court and put in initial papers and come up with additional witnesses who may be able to testify. Now, this allows the case to be heard in a more formal setting of the immigration court where witnesses may be examined and cross-examined by the asylum seekers. Counsel and the Department of Homeland Security counsels are the prosecutors. To be clear, if deportation proceedings are underway, the applicant can apply for asylum by presenting his defensive application. Now, that application is heard exclusively by the immigration judges. At the hearing in immigration court, and there are 263 of such courts across 27 states of the United States, Puerto Rico, Northern Mariana Islands, and we have a number of judges on these courts. At the hearing, the asylum applicant must present evidence to avoid being deported. The Department of Homeland Security will present evidence and argument in support of its decision to refuse asylum. Evidence presented must be relevant and conform to the requirements of the Constitutional Due Process Clause. The burden of proof, though, unlike in a criminal case, the burden of proof in an asylum case is on the applicant to establish that the applicant is a refugee within the meaning of the statute. The one I read you earlier that you're fleeing 
persecution or a well-founded persecution because of your race, religion, nationality, your political opinion or particular standing or standing in a particular so, so a particular social group. If the claimant persuades the immigration judge that she meets the statute's asylum requirements, then the judge may grant asylum for an indefinite amount of time. In addition, the claimant's immediate family members who are still abroad may join him or her in the United States. If the immigration judge denies the asylum request, the applicant can appeal to what's called the Board of Immigration Appeals. The BIA reviews all appeals from immigration courts throughout the United States. Now, I think I've given you enough to have an idea. There's a lot to immigration in the United States. But I'm here to help you out a little bit and tell you something about it. Or in next shows or in shows coming up, I may tell you a little bit more. But for now, that's all I can tell you for today. But I want to finish this program on sort of a high note. As you know, we usually have some riddles at the end. One of my colleagues, Catherine, really likes them. Hope you do, too. I hope she's doing okay and listening to the program. At any rate, here are some riddles for you, and that's going to take us throughout the end of the show. But I'm so happy that you have listened today and stayed with me here on Talk Zone Radio. The first riddle. Why are pianos so hard to open? Think about it. Why are pianos so hard to open? What's the answer? Well, it's because the keys are on the inside. (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a good one. Here's another one. What is smaller than an ant's mouth? What is smaller than an ant's mouth? Well, you should know what's smaller than an ant's mouth is an ant's dinner. (laughs) Yeah, peanut gallery gets it. All right, let's move on. Here's another one. How do porcupines play leapfrog? How do porcupines play leapfrog? Well, folks, if you haven't figured it out, they play leapfrog very, very carefully. (laughs) I like that. Why do elephants never forget? Why do elephants never forget? It's because nobody ever tells them anything. (laughs) All right, it wasn't that funny, folks. All right, well, we're going to keep going here. We got one or two more that I want to read to you. What do you call a flying skunk? What do you call a flying skunk? Think about it. Think hard. Give you a couple of seconds. What do you call a flying skunk? Well, the answer is you'd call it a smelly copter. <laughs> a smelly copter. <laughs> I like that myself. 
All right. Last drill. What kind of socks do pirates strike that? Let's start again. What kind of socks do pirates wear? What kind of socks do pirates wear? Think about it. Pirates wear argyle socks. (laughs) You like that? Well, I like that one, too. Well, listen, folks, this is Leonard Birdsong Radio that you're listening to. Okay, folks, stop it. That's the peanut gallery. They sometimes get out of hand. At any rate, it's been great being with you. I wish I had longer to be on the air, but you can read some of my dumb criminal law stories if you'd like to on my blog. It's uh, available all over the world. Just go to www.birdsongslaw.com. All one word, birdsongslaw.com. Dot com. You can read many of my dumb criminal law stories online. Also, you can go to my website, leonardbirdsong.com. You can read more about me. You can see all of my books, my little bookstore, books I have for sale. They're very inexpensive. It's 14 humor books on dumb criminal law stories a book about going to law school or choosing to go to law school. And also I have a book on immigration that you might want to read. So don't forget LeonardBirdsong.com. Don't forget my blog, www.BirdsongsLaw.com. And you can also email me by writing me at LBirdsong22 at gmail.com. It's been great, folks. I hope you have a good weekend coming up. I've had fun being with you. It's time to take me out, Dave. Thanks so much.